Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come. Come in and stomp your boots, unwrap, strip off a few layers, and just relax. This past week, we went through well, some interesting weather. Wind chills at minus 50, actual temperatures minus 17 degrees. We had about a foot of snow over last week, and on top of the few inches that were left over from New Year's, that means we had about 25 inches total thereabouts on the ground, sitting there, getting chilled, getting icy. Well, that's old news. Right now, temperatures are in the uh, in the high 30s, I do believe. And it is snowing, more or less. What isn't rain is snow. Ah, well, you're here now. And it's time for this week's Tales to Terrify. Welcome. My name is Lawrence Santoro. And tonight, tonight we've got a special show, as all our shows are special. This week, featuring the work of Mr. John Shirley, a very special guy, and we'll have two of his stories on tap. We were going to have a Horror 101 segment as well tonight, which would have made for a hefty show, but why not? The holidays are done for a bit, and we can use some hefty relaxation. But, 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 this must be the season for hard drives to fail and this past week it was Kevin's turn to be let down by those delicate little heads and arms and spinning platters. I have no idea why they work at all, ever. Anyway, mine failed just as show number 103 was coming to fruition, and this week Kevin's failed. Hopefully next week? Next week? Yes. 
yes, we'll have a Horror 101. Perhaps you remember my apology last week to Eric Gustafsson for failing to acknowledge his suggestion that listeners be invited to send us recordings of short shorts and flash fiction pieces of their own for our second anniversary show. Well, mentioning that reminded me that since the first few months of our existence, we have had an offer out to you writers and would-be narrators. That offer has been to send us the first chapter of your book. Well, Ten minutes of the first chapter of your book or novella or the whole of your flash fiction piece at all, so long as it comes in for about ten minutes. When we get your story or book fragment, we'll put it up at the end of the show, without comment. You can introduce it, tell us who you are, give us a few cogent thoughts about the story, then read to us. Make us want more. Make the whole package no more than ten terrifying minutes, which is what we've been calling it, and we'll play it just before I scoot everyone out into the dark. Hmm? Well, give us a nice clean recording and send it to pens and paper at the ready. Yes? Send it to simplicity itself, tales to terrify, all one word, at gmail.com. Put Ten terrifying minutes in the subject line of the email. As mentioned, we made this offer sometime around show number 20. We had a few responses, but not enough to keep up the uh, encouragement. So that now we're in our terrible twos and have a larger listener base, I'd like to try it again. Send your ten terrifying minutes to tales to terrify at gmail.com and we'll post it. And one more thing. There's the search for a new share still ongoing. This is the last week I'll mention it. Specifically, we're looking for a new co-editor of Tales to Terrify. If you're interested, if you love horror and know horror writing, if you know how to talk to writers and narrators and are far more organized than I am and have a computer and skills and a big one, this, if you have the time to handle the job, let us know. Cher has said that when she's on top of things, it takes her about a day per week to do the job. Drop us a note at Tales to Terrify at gmail.com, and this time put co-editor in the subject line. Cher says she will help the new person through the transition. So there it is, and thanks for all you've done, Cher, and for all you continue to do. Ah, fiction. This week, we shall hear two tales by John Shirley— each of these bear John's signature brand of cyberpunkalicious dark humor. Both give us a nasty, creepy view of an afterlife we hope is all in fun. John was born in Houston, Texas, and grew up largely in the vicinity of Portland, Oregon. His earliest novels were Transmaniacon and Dracula in Love for Zebra Books and City Come A-Walkin', a proto-cyberpunk novel for Delacorte. He also wrote the cyberpunk trilogy A Song Called Youth for Warner Books, which was re-released in 2012 as an omnibus by 
prime books. Besides writing, John was also lead singer of the punk band Sado Nation in 1978. While living in New York City and Paris, France in the 1980s, he was in the post-punk funk rock band Obsession, and later in the band The Panther Moderns. He's written 18 song lyrics recorded by the Blue Oyster Cult, and that's about all I'm going to tell you about that. John currently lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his wife. They have three sons, twins Byron and Perry, now 27, and Julian, a Bay Area-based underground rapper and recording artist. Here, without further fuss from me, is Paper Angels on Fire by John Shirley. Mr. Cordell, I know how you must feel. Brett Sage glanced sympathetically into Cordell's eyes as he said it. Yes, you've lost Muriel, for a while, but you'll see your daughter again, I promise you. Sage realized he had his hands in his jacket pockets. It was chilly on the front porch, but hands in pockets didn't look right at a time like this. He took his hands out and clasped them in front of him. He'd seen funeral directors use that pose. What happened was part of Muriel's journey. Death is just a freeway interchange, Mr. Cordell. Cordell smiled coldly and nodded to himself. Yeah, it's almost funny to watch, the way your mouth moves and those words come out like puffs of smoke. Cordell was a balding, middle-aged man in a black sweater flecked with what looked like dog hair. The sweater's sleeves were drawn back, showing beefy forearms. Sage could see the big dog waiting in Cordell's SUV, a German shepherd. Cordell was wearing opaque dark glasses, hiding his eyes, and maybe his intentions. Just means nothing at all, Cordell went on. You are one empty son of a bitch, Sage. And Sage saw that Cordell's right hand was hidden behind his back. Sage licked his lips, took a step back, edging towards his front door. Maybe he'd been hasty, coming out on the porch alone? It was starting to sound like this wasn't about a settlement. Little Bear was out back somewhere, fixing the hot tub. The sunset bite was in the northern New Mexico air. The shadowy pine woods around the house rang and chattered with birdsong. The ranch house was isolated, no neighbors around to call out to, if he needed them. Something moved clickingly through the patch of prickly pear under the front window. Funny how vivid everything seemed in this instant. Cordell took a step toward him, and the birdsong all at once suddenly quieted. "'My daughter trusted you,' Cordell said between clenched teeth. "'And that is just goddamn amazing to me. Just look at you, shabby, middle-aged, long-haired, unlicensed therapist and beaded moccasins. A slick line of bullshit. Lots of worn-out clichés. And your slogan, "'Give me your trust and I'll give you life,' Cordell shook his head sadly. She was always a bit lost, that girl. We tried hard, real goddamn hard, to help her. And she was getting on track. And then you got hold of her. That's when Sage noticed the tattoo on Cordell's left forearm. Faded blue ink, but you could make out an anchor slanted through the earth, topped by an eagle and Semper Fi. Sage swallowed. 
Mr. Cordell, we've had hundreds of people in that sweat lodge with no problem, and she probably had some, some pre-existing condition, a bad heart valve, or... No, she didn't. You gave her drugs. You wouldn't give her water. You wouldn't let her leave. She died in that hole in the ground you call a sweat lodge. And those others, too. We've never, uh... They had, actually, given the experiencers a rather large dose of ecstasy. People expected a powerful experience for their $3,000 seminar fee, and that was the only way to guarantee it. He told them the pills were made of sacred herbs. They were supposed to take the pills after the sweat lodge ordeal. But the timing got mixed up, maybe because Sage himself had been stoned that morning. She may have taken something on her own. Uh Uh-huh, that's what your lawyer says. Says you didn't give her the stuff. But you did, Sage. Ecstasy. Now, that wouldn't have killed her, but that stuff makes a body overheat. And then you put her into a sweat lodge. Wouldn't let her leave. She begged to be let out. We've been in touch with her. We've channeled her since then, and I know it's hard to believe, but she's actually um, happy where she is. Sage, you're going to choke on your own lies, starting with your name. What's your real last name again? Mazuski? Um, it was Mazinski. Didn't have the right ring to it. He'd stopped thinking of himself as Mazinski long ago. I am Sage. You're a hustler who doesn't care who he hurts is who you are. A hit-and-run charlatan doesn't care who he runs down. But your pals in the local DA's office looks like they're going to let you get away with it. No prosecution. Sure, I could win a lawsuit, but that doesn't make it, Sage. That's not restitution for my daughter. Not in my book. Sage licked his lips. Mouth seemed so dry. I can see this attempt to communicate was a mistake. I understand your feelings in this time of bereavement, but you'd better talk to my lawyer. Good day to you, and may the spirits bless you, Mr. Cordell. He turned away and fumbled at the door. Get through it, fast. Damned rusty knob, open the damned door. He felt Cordell punch him hard in the right kidney. That's what it felt like at first. But there was a funny sound with the punch, a snake-hiss sound. Then his legs wouldn't hold him up, and he was slipping down the closed front door, still clutching at the knob. Waves of blazing sensation rolled in furious rhythm from his lower back. He'd never before felt anything like it, so far beyond any pain he'd ever felt. It was like being hit by lightning, over and over in the same spot. Cordell's voice came to him, as if from a telephone held at arm's length. That's a bayonet you feel there, Sage. I angled it up, gave it a little twist. But you won't die too quickly. My daughter didn't die too quickly. You're going to... Sage couldn't hear any more. He leaned forward against the door, on his knees, hands skittering at the doorknob, convulsing. All his feelings, all his senses sucked through the spike of ice in his lower back, and the process went on forever. And then forever ended, somehow, and he fell through his own door. The wooden front door had become gelatinous, and then foggy, and he fell through it and lay on the floor, face down, half in the house, half outside, He thought he might sink through the floor, but somehow it held him up. Then he realized the pain was... gone. He felt almost nothing at all. Not even fear. Just a faint, sickened wonder. He drew his legs up under him, and somehow, very awkwardly, managed to stand. Sage turned and looked at the front door. 
It was closed. He stepped over to the window onto the wide porch and saw Cordell walking away from the house, toward the SUV and the German Shepherd. Muriel's father was running a hand over his bald head as he went, looking limp, barely able to trudge along, sunglasses now dangling from his other hand. Another man, a middle-aged man with a graying ponytail, remained on the porch, slumped against the front door on his knees. There was a bayonet grip sticking out of his lower back. His left arm was faintly twitching. Blood was running down his hip, pooling around him. The sick feeling entirely replaced the wonder. Sage turned away, went to the kitchen, called out, Little Bear! George, get in here! Little Bear's name was actually George Valdez. He'd never had a traditional Native American name. He was a quarter Comanche, three-quarters Mexican, really. But he played the wise Native American medicine man exactly as Sage needed. He was also the Foundation's handyman. "'George, goddammit!' he called. The back door opened and George came in, wearing overalls. Long, gray-streaked black hair, features right out of an Aztec temple painting. Chewing gum, wiping grease from his hands on a red rag. "'Hey, Sage!' George yelled, looking around. From three yards away. "'I got the hot tub fixed!' Not seeing Sage, walking right by him, Sage tried to stop him with an outstretched hand, and it was like Sage's hand was boneless, all made of rubber. It turned away from George's arm, couldn't get a grip on it. George kept on, into the front room. Sage numbly followed. I'm right here, damn it. George, look at me! What the fuck? George yelled from the front door. Seeing blood oozing under the door, George opened the door and Sage's body sagged forward like a sack of fertilizer. Madre Dios, George muttered. He pushed at the body with his booted foot, stepped back from it, shook his head once. Not gonna blame this on me. No fucking way, man. George turned and bolted, charging through the house, banging out the back door. Sage shouted after him in a sort of blurred fury. Why, you son of a bitch! You should call 911! I might still be alive, for Christ's sake! He heard the old Ford pickup starting, revving, screeching off down the gravel road. No, you couldn't still be alive, said the figure in white, matter-of-factly. The man in the glimmering white suit was perched casually on the windowsill to Sage's left, legs stretched out to the floor, like he was a comfortable old friend making himself at ease in Sage's house. But Sage had never seen that bland, pale, blue-eyed face before. Actually, you kind of lost track of time when you were stabbed, Brett. It took some minutes for you to die. That young woman's father was watching the whole time till he was sure you were dead. This whole thing an acid flashback? Sage asked, approaching the figure sitting casually on the windowsill. Or am I on ayahuasca again? You were never on ayahuasca. They just told you it was ayahuasca. It was a stew of handy random drugs they sell to the white people from the north. Why, those crooked bastards. Sage looked more closely at the translucent figure leaning against the sill. So, I'm definitely dead? You definitely are. The figure in white chuckled with angelic condescension. So, that meant life after death was real. Sage had talked about it thousands of times at lectures and seminars, but he'd never believed a word of it. Well, what do you know? He looked more closely at the angelic visitor. 
He seemed vaguely reminiscent of a vice-principal at Sage's old junior high school in Santa Fe. Mr. Wallace, wasn't that his name? Are you Mr. Wallace? The figure in white bobbed his eyebrows. Who's Mr. Wallace? I am the Angel Abnegas, Brett. I work for the Cleansing Authority. Sage didn't like the sound of that. I don't actually need cleansing, Sage said, thinking aloud. I don't know you. You could be lying about my being dead. He put his hand to his chest, felt for a heartbeat. Then he felt for his chest itself. It was only indistinctly there, a flicker under his hand, little more. He looked down and made out a dim outline, as if his body was made out of glass, a brett-shaped bottle. There's not much there, in there, is there, Abnegas observed in a kindly tone. But the part of you that can suffer, or feel pleasure, or perceive, that's still there. It's something the authority tucks away in the human brain. We take it out when you die, and either plug it into a new one, or push it into the outer darkness for recycling, using the contemporary terminology here. Sage didn't like the confidence this man was literally radiating. It was a soft, blue-white light coming off him. When you say, take it out, you're talking about a soul? Essentially. And my soul will be plugged into a new body, for a new start? Abnegas looked at him with surprise. I hardly think so. You've recently caused the early deaths of several young people. You've been drugging people, lying to them, exploiting them since you found your little hustle in the 1970s, Brett? You've made many hundreds of thousands of dollars off your seminars, but you haven't paid your ex-wife a cent of child support. Whenever you had a choice in life, you chose selfishly. Hence, I'll be taking you right to the outer darkness, where the spiritual ecology will make short work of you. You're pretty low on the food chain, so it won't be pleasant. Thinking about that, Sage verified that he could indeed feel. And it was another new feeling. He'd never felt real terror before. You mean, something's going to eat me? Yes. Not much of a meal. It'll release your light energy as it does so, and that's the part that will be recycled. It'll take time for you to be digested. The outer darkness is not in the sphere of the eternal, see? Time exists there, which is maybe the worst part. It'll take a long, long time. With that, the angelic figure stood up and stretched out his hands towards Sage. Sage backed away from him. No! I have power! I have the power of the warrior! I am a man of mystery! You have no power over me! Oh, but I do. Come, my child, take my hand. The sooner you get started, the sooner the centuries of agony will pass. And you will pass like a kidney stone. Sage blinked at him. Like a kidney stone? <laughs> Roy, you idiot, you had him going, but you blew it! This cawing voice came from the kitchen doorway. Sage turned and saw a man he did know standing there. His uncle Rufus. He hadn't known Rufus well. He'd seen him at holiday celebrations, a jolly, usually drunk, flabby chunk of a man. But he knew his big jowly jaw, his gray crew cut, his dark laughing eyes. Uncle Rufus! Got that ID right anyway, boyo. It's me, but not in the flesh. Died in 1980, and here I am, floating on the margins, having my fun just like Roy here. Rufus, you bastard, the angel grumbled. Sage looked at the spirit in white. Your name is Roy? I don't care for Roy. Not as classy a sounding name as Abnegas. Rufus hooted at that, 
Abnegas. I thought you'd twig to the hoax right there, boyo. What a fake-out name Abnegas is. Roy the Angel shrugged. Like the sound of it, what can I say? He grinned. I almost had him. That cleansing authority stuff sounded good. Sage looked back and forth between his dead uncle and the spirit named Roy. So I'm not going to some kind of hell to be eaten alive? Rufus snorted. Course not. What sort of afterlife would that be? But suppose you'd buckled under and passively gone with old Roy here? Why, he'd have traded you to some larger, very rapacious soul for favors. Would have been quite uncomfortable. Slavery, actually. Roy snorted. Wouldn't have been that bad. The whole thing was just a kind of hazing, really. Sage felt giddy with relief. No judgment? I really don't have to go with him? Hell no. You're a ghost now. You do what ghosts do. You can wander around and enjoy the afterlife. Rufus laughed. Judgment. I don't know why people scare each other with that poppycock. Only judgment is you judge yourself. That's what you're stuck with. Yourself. Well, then... Then I judge myself to be... Uh, to be a great warrior. A man of power. And... and a teacher. Right, right, all that stuff, sure. Whatever you want, nephew mine. That's why I came, when I sensed you died, to tell you not to believe anything you heard. I knew Roy was snooping around, and he loves to play these little jokes. Roy there, he's a teacher's aide. Or he was. He got fired for hitting on some college girl, got drunk, died in a car accident... Now he drifts around, all bored, and messes with the newly dead. It's his little hustle, you see. Sage looked at Roy, who spread his hands ruefully. Busted. Sage tried, out of habit, to scratch his head as he thought it over. Couldn't feel his head well enough to scratch it. In fact, his ectoplasmic fingers penetrated into his mind, and the sensation made him shudder. I can feel, in a way. But is it possible to really, you know, have a good time? I mean, I can't imagine there's sex or drugs for a ghost, or... Roy yawned. Not exactly. There's fun, though. I make my own fun. I don't miss being mortal. Bodies are overrated, believe me. Think about it. No more having to stuff your face, wipe your behind, no getting sick, no getting tired, no getting old. Rufus nodded, grinning. Right. I mean, bodies. Ugh. Bodies making Sage think about the hunched, bloody figure on the front porch. I was murdered. Isn't there any justice for that? I wonder if I should go haunt that guy Cordell. He wouldn't know you were there, Rufus said. You're too insubstantial a spirit. Most are too thin for the living to be aware of. Anyway, he's turning himself into the cops right now. They'll jug him for the killing. Whereas you got away with yours. Until today. I didn't plan to kill anyone. I was always trying to straighten people's heads out, that's all. Sometimes it goes wrong. Sometimes? Rufus grinned at him, his smile twice as wide as his mouth, which didn't seem possible. What I heard was people just wandered off after you took them for their money. A couple of them killed themselves. Another one started selling herbal life, and one of them was a survivalist in Colorado. Then you had your little sweat lodge adventure. Roy had stepped up close beside Sage. It seemed to Sage that Roy had grown a foot taller, that he was looming over him. That's what I heard, too, Roy said. His voice seemed lower, rougher. That you never did help anyone at all. That you just wasted their time, and sometimes their lives. Sage drew back from Roy, annoyed. 
The ghost was trying to yank his chains, so to speak, again. The hell with him. He was going to get out of this depressing house, the scene of his death, and explore the immortal world. Wander around, slip into some women's locker rooms, maybe? Oh, and maybe expand his consciousness. Or something. He started to move past Rufus, toward the kitchen, and the back door. Rufus blocked his way. Hold on there, Sage. Sage didn't want to hold on. He veered quickly around Rufus, spurred by a rising uneasiness. Rufus flashed past him, and stood in front of the back door. I said, wait! Seemed like his uncle's head was slowly expanding, like a balloon being gradually blown up. And there was another face, pushing out under the Rufus face, which crumbled apart from the pressure, the outer face becoming powdery, drifting away as smoke, the inner, bigger face something like an enormous hyena's head, but with human eyes, human lips, a subhuman voice growling. Brett, you would better stay here with us. We have lovely, lovely plans for you. Sage turned and saw Roy looming up over him, nine feet tall, his face all doughy, collapsing, hardening into a kind of fleshy, semi-human mantis shape. Sage! The voice coming in a clattering chitter. Do you like our little joke? He turned back to the hyena-headed thing, realizing, You were never my uncle. No. Your uncle Rufus is in the outer darkness. You may crowd into a demonic gut with him. Say hello for me if you see him. You are... you're a... a what? The hyena-headed spirit opened its quite human hands, and between them expanded a chain of paper angels, exactly the sort that people cut with scissors to amuse children. The angels burst into flame, and flew away on wings of ash, to suck into the hyena's mouth as if he were inhaling dope smoke. Ah, we are paper angels for a time. We mix a little truth into the lies. And then we show ourselves to you, as you showed yourself to Muriel Cordell. I was trying to help her. You threw your line into the water, fishing for lonely lost souls, Sage. And when you hooked them, you reeled them in. You promised them relief from their dilemmas, and took their time and money and their freedom. And when they realized you could give them nothing... Their hope was destroyed, and they wandered away to be lost again, or to die. You offered them a hope, and you snatched it away. That's how you helped all those people, Brett Sage. Sage tried to slip off between them, trying to move quickly as the Rufus thing had, and the Roy thing blocked him, making a ticky-ticky-tick sound of amusement by rubbing its chitinous front talons together. Sage froze, and his voice came in a sort of squeak. Not from his mouth, from somewhere in his shriveling soul. There is judgment? There are consequences, the creature snarled gleefully. Starting with me, and my companion, who really is called Abnegas. I am called Crick. Abnegas isn't an angel, or Roy? He is the same kind as I, those who feed on such as you. But however, Abnegas said, Yes, however, Crick chorused, however, you may run into the side hallway, there, and find a place to hide. I'm, I'm a spirit. You can't hurt me. I don't have to run from you. You're bluffing. You're... Abnega's head darted forward like a striking mantis, and his mandibles dug into Sage's middle. Sage felt his center crushed in chewing jaws, 
and something worse than pain crackled through him. A sense of vital diminishment. A feeling of an infinitely unheeded void. A nothingness aching with entropy, impinging on his innermost being. He felt a shriveling of an inner self he hadn't known was there till that moment. Sage screamed from within himself, silently and with world-shaking loudness, all at once. He shrank away from Abnegas, seeing shining shreds of himself writhing in the demon's mandibles, each little bit looking like a tiny image of Sage, as if the thing were eating Brett-Sage-shaped gummy candies. "'Just a bite,' the hyena had growled. "'There's not a lot of you to consume. You'll make a thin, understated little snack.' Then Sage bolted for the hallway, was rushing, flying through the house, his feet not quite touching the floor, looking for a place to hide. The basement? No. There was a window in the bedroom. He darted into his bedroom, past his neatly made bed, flinging himself toward the window, which went black. He pulled up short, staring through the glass. It no longer looked onto the little succulent garden at the side of the house. It looked into a churning black space, an uneasy mirror of ink, and Sage knew if he continued to look he would be drawn into it. He turned away and heard the noises from the hallway, the growling, the chittering, the clicking of claws coming closer. He wailed and threw himself to the floor, trying to push down through it as he'd fallen through the door, but it wouldn't work. It seemed to resist him. He could feel some other will there, pushing back, who was it? It didn't seem friendly, but it didn't seem unfriendly. Just a watching presence, waiting its turn. Help me! He called out to it. Let me through! The room darkened. A smell came to him then. The reek of a man's kidney ripped open, mixed with blood. The smell of his own death. Why now? He looked under the bed, toward the door. Saw the clawed feet there, poised. Sage whimpered and crawled under the bed. Help me, he called out to the other presence. I'm sorry for what I've done. Help me. I'll make up for it. I'll redeem myself. You are only lies, came a voice from the floors, the walls, the air. Only lies. No, I mean it. I... He felt a steel-hard, ice-cold grip on his lower limbs, on what passed for legs in a damaged ghost. Something had gripped him hard there and was pulling him back. Sage! It was Crick, pulling him out from under the bed. You didn't play the game very well. Nothing to do now but feast. It's time, Abnega said. And time goes on and on for you, Crick said, dragging him into the center of the room. They leaned over him. Please, Sage cried out from the very center of his being. Give me a chance! A small tornado of pitch black was forming in the center of the room, between Abnegas and Crick. In the center of the onyx whirling appeared a point of light. The scintillation grew, and then flashed like a brilliant strobe to fill the room. A glowing being stood there, arms spread. Its face was an archetype of all angelic beings. It shone with infinite understanding. The two demons, Abnegas and Crick, crouched, recoiling away from it covering their eyes in frustration and pain and fury. A feeling of relief rippled through Sage. It was like stepping out of a sleety winter wind into a warm, cozy room. There was hope. There was a chance. 
the being of light spread its arms. Its wings, like a white butterfly's, filled the room with a comforting perfume, which he seemed to remember. Wasn't that his mother's perfume, remembered from his infancy? Come then, Brett, said the being of light. Its voice was neither male nor female, just as the voice of a clarinet has no sex. It opened its arms wider. The warm light beckoned. Sage rose up, weak but eager to go to the angel, to be rescued and set free. Give me your trust, and I'll give you life, said the white-winged angel. Sage flung himself headlong into it, and then realized it had been quoting him, mocking the slogan subtitling his website, Give me your trust and I'll give you life. He tried to turn back, but it was too late. He was falling through the portal, because that's what it was. It wasn't a real being. It was a mirage, a doorway into the sucking heart of the black tornado, which vacuumed him down with high-speed centrifugal intensity so that he spun helplessly into his depths. Finally emerging in the churning darkness that he'd seen outside the window, where Abnegas and Crick were waiting, with a great many other beings, all of them ravenous. Yeah, Crick said, crushing him in its talons. That was a little more fun at your expense. And now, and now, the ripping began. Their hatred was their teeth and claws, tearing him to pieces. But the pieces drew back together, reforming, wailing, into the nauseating spirit body that was what remained of the man who'd called himself Sage, which was immediately swallowed by Crick and all the others, who were, he saw now, all one creature, many grotesque heads on one ethereal body. Down, Sage slipping down into darkness, into its jet-black inner world where its hate was a digestive acid, reducing him to a shrieking pulp, the grinding pain going on and on, and then a glimmer in the darkness, a living angelic light. Forgive me, Sage howled within himself. Come to me, and I will forgive you, the light replied. Sage rushed to the point of light, weeping, feeling hope blossom. It drew him in. Just kidding, it said, as it ate him again. Living pulverization unspeakable suffering that went on forever. Then a light gleamed. He rushed to it, trembling with relief. It drew him in. Thank you so much for the use of that, John. Paper Angels on Fire was collected in a book called In Extremis, the extreme short stories of John Shirley. I heartily recommend it. Paper Angels on Fire was read for us tonight by Peter Cavell. Peter is a writer, voice actor, and musician. His short fiction has appeared in Night to Dawn and Sideshow Fables, and his plays have been produced in Toronto, Boston, and San Antonio. Peter lives in Toronto with his wife and ferocious cat, and is a musical director at the Second City Training Center. News of his adventures and free downloads of his works 
can be found at www.petercavell.com. You'll find that on the Tales to Terrify homepage and on our Facebook page, which, by the way, I encourage you to friend us on. Lots of good things happen there. In any event, our second story by Mr. Shirley for tonight was first published in 2009 in The Bleeding Edge, Dark Barriers, Dark Frontiers. In 2012, this story found another home in a little book called Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. Still available, by the way. Here, with apologies to Sylvia Schultz, David Youngquist, and company, is John Shirley's Just a Suggestion. This is a for real story about me and the Holiday family. I figure they're a good example of what I can do and what can happen. I'm going to talk about all the shooting and where the people who got shot went after they died to the extent that I know and why I'm still ghosting up this house. I'll tell you that part right now. I'm trying to put it on the tape recording this ghost seeker boob is using to get his EVP that he's hoping will get him on a TV show. That EVP. It's electronic voice phenomena. They play a tape recorder when no one's talking, and later on, see, they play it back, turn it up real loud, and there's a message on it. Anyway, that's what they think. Really, it's just some noise, and they interpret the noise any way they want. I know this from watching a show about this stuff. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When I was haunting the Costco store in Tustin, They had all those TVs turned on for people to buy, and I watched a show about this EVP business. Think they're hearing ghosts when the tape goes, and they're telling each other they're hearing, be gone, goodbye. Right. People claim to have the dirt, or the grave dirt, on ghosts, spirits, what have you. But they don't. 
Ghosts and spirits aren't even the same thing. The chubby dumbass with male pattern baldness and the dirty glasses. He's sitting here right now, running the tape recorder. Hey, if he actually hears this later on, me talking about how he's a dumbass and chubby, <laughs> nothing personal, buddy. He painted ghost seekers across the side of an old white cargo van in orange paint with a stencil. The bottom of the EE in seekers is runny. Looks stupid. I don't think this guy is going to get on TV. But he had an ad in the Orange County Register, I guess, judging from what I heard Lucille say when she called him on her cell phone. She called him to check out this place because of what little Lindy said about me and Franklin. Lindy's the only one who seemed to know I was there. She's more sensitive than the rest of the family or something. Not a sensitive, like they say on the Psychic Channel, but more sensitive. That's how it works. I mean, if you're a live person paying attention, if you're really with it, you can feel the dead around you. No special talent. But it helps to be sensitive and just pay attention to the right things. I mean, I'm sitting here talking right out loud into the little microphone that the ghost seekers got set up in the room, but judging from the look on his face and the fact that he's digging into his nose every so often when he's not scratching his crotch, I don't think the dumb son of a bitch hears me. No clue I'm here. Maybe the machine will pick me up, though. I'm talking as loud as I can. I don't exactly have lungs or a, what do you call it, a voice box or a tongue. But then again, I kind of do, in a fuzzy way. I can move air around a bit, and I can make sounds. When I whisper to people, though, it's more to their minds. They hear it, but then again, they don't. I don't understand the whole process that much myself. We'll see if anyone can hear this. I think I can see that little needle on the tape recorder moving a tiny, real tiny bit when I talk. I'll give a shout out to the world just in case. Go Lakers! I'm still a Lakers fan. Oh, and my name, it's Murray Samuel Maradian. Kind of a mouthful. My dad was being cute with the Murray Mora sound. I'm Armenian American. Or I was. I guess I don't have any DNA anymore. Don't you need DNA to be some ethnic type? After my old man died of that blood clot thing, I went into his convenience store business. One of those stores attached to a gas station on Culver Avenue. Never was interested in the convenience store business as a career. I wanted to spend as little time in the store as I could. Because he was there morning to night, and I didn't want to be around him. He always seemed disgusted with me, no matter what I did. I got a B plus. he was disgusted it wasn't an A. You always got to fall short, huh? Push harder next time. Disgust came rolling off of him like a bad smell. I wonder where his ghost went. I've never seen it. Not my mom's ghost either. Or the ghost of anyone I knew in life. Unless you want to count someone like Blonde Boy, and I don't. All the ghosts I know are strangers. Most dead people don't seem to stay around. Just some of them. Where are all the ghosts of all the millions and billions who've died? Climbed some golden ladder to heaven? No one's offered me a golden ladder. Fact is, I haven't seen anything about God or heaven or hell or angels since I've been dead these last ten years. But I picked up on some pretty mean spirits that you might call devils. Sometimes I hear them, and I almost see them. Oh, about my death. I was two days short of my 46th birthday and walking the two blocks home from work about midnight, crossing the street with the light. And some tweaker ran a red light, smacked me like a two-ton baseball bat. His car spun out and stopped. 
and he sat there babbling in his car the way they do. And then the son of a bitch just drove off. I saw that much because I was already dead. Just like that, bam, floating a few feet over my body, which was twisted all kinds of wrong ways. Didn't yet have it together to follow the hit-and-run tweaker, so I never got the chance to take revenge on that asshole. But pretty soon I was watching a couple of paramedics, a cholo and some surfer-looking dude, loading my mashed body into the back of an ambulance. They were laughing about it. Yeah, you go ahead and do some CPR on him. He's got one lip left there, blonde boy. Like they'd even do CPR that way. They just had a good time laughing at the dead guy. I saw one of those blown glass pot pipes sticking out of blonde boy's pocket, too. I knew exactly what it was. We sold them at the convenience store. That pissed me off more than the hit and run. I don't know why. Just him treating me like that, making the whole thing part of his pot high. Wrinkling up his nose with disgust while he talked about my body, too. They drove off, and now I'd wish I'd gotten in the ambulance, taking care of them right then. Only, I didn't know how to do it back then. I was new to being dead. So I started walking. I walked for miles, till finally I was in Tustin, and there were these old blimp hangers, historical somethings, and down a little further was the big old Costco store, just recently opened. I waited till a security guard unlocked the door, and I went in with him, and just stayed. The store was big enough to wander in, but also it was shelter from the sky. Now that I'm dead, the open sky always makes me feel like something's going to reach down and grab me and take me somewhere. Maybe somewhere bad. So I stayed put, puttering around in Costco for years. You lose track of time when you're dead. But I knew about how many years because of the seasonal products. Halloween stuff in bulk would come, Christmas decorations in bulk, Easter junk in bulk... July 4th decorations, Halloween crap again, Thanksgiving turkeys, and there you have one year. Oh yeah, I should tell you how I picked the holiday family. I was getting sick of haunting Costco. Sick of the other ghosts in there, especially. This Mexican landscaper who used to work around there, who died right outside of a heart attack, his ghost was always wandering around asking where his family was, asking me if I'd seen them. He would ask, where are they? What's going on? Over and over in a pitiful way. Que pasa, que pasa? You pasa, dude, I told him. You pasa away. Most ghosts are confused, see? Me? I got clarity, though. I can think. I'm clear on what I want to do, given, you know, the choices I've got, which aren't that many. I don't have much freedom as a ghost. I mean, it's all bullcrap that a ghost can walk through walls. No, sir. You have to wait till someone opens the door and then you follow them through before it closes. You can ride along on their shoulders, piggyback-like, as they go through the door. They don't usually feel it. Ghosts do that a lot and people never know. I stayed in the Costco for a long time because it was big and there were a lot of people to look at. A lot of housewives. You can have fun checking them out in ways they never figured on. But after a while, the music, the lights, the other ghosts who lived there, dud conversationalists, all of them. It was hell. I was thinking, maybe there is a hell. Maybe it's Costco. When I saw the holiday bunch. They were walking around the store in a kind of family conga line, up and down the aisles, Dad leading the way, pushing that giant basket. Dad, that's Boyd Holiday. Chunky guy with a space between his front teeth, his eyes a little too far apart, nose flattened like the tip of a hammer. He was about the same age I was when I died. Then comes his wife, Rema Holiday. Almost small enough to be a midget. Wears short dresses, maybe to make her tiny legs look longer. Her dun hair bobbed, 
bruised-looking eyes, but no one had hit her. Then, Boyd's goopy sister, Lucille, same space in the teeth and wide-apart eyes, dyed black hair looked to me like a mop, but she calls it dreads because she's got some Jamaican boyfriend. Lucille was staying with them while she studied to get her chiropractor's license, like that's ever going to happen. Then, trailing after Aunt Lucille, the holiday kids, Lindy, the 11-year-old girl, and Franklin, the teen boy. Franklin could have been the poster boy for snotty teens. Mouth stayed open, always texting. Took me a while to figure out what texting was. It wasn't big till after I died. And he's got those droopy-ass pants like his hip-hop heroes. Makes me glad I never had any kids. Of course, I never had any women to knock up, hardly. No women at all, except if I paid, to be honest. So how would I... Wait, do I want to say that part about paying? Okay, shit, so what? It's on there now. I can't make the rewind button work. And it's nothing compared to some of the stuff I'm going to tell you about. Stuff that I suggested. I followed them, the Holiday family. Not sure why I was doing it. Just thinking that there was potential of some kind. Maybe I could really get involved with a family. Besides just whispering this and that to the people at Costco. Wait, I know what it was. It was that... I'm mad, but I'm not going to admit it. Look on Boyd's face. Charging along like he was trying to challenge his family to keep up. Looking hurt, mad, disgusted. I just thought, there he is, Mr. Powder Keg. It's playtime. And that's what I wanted. Playtime. Because I felt trapped in myself. Like I was locked in a car and had to drive around and around and the doors wouldn't unlock to let me out. I was stuck in there with that stink of disgust and the burning smell of being really mad and I knew there was only one thing that could get me out of it, at least for a while. So, I slipped into their slipstream, you might say, followed them around as they bought groceries, and the boy hassled them into buying a game about grand theft. The little girl got some concert DVD to do with somebody named Hannah Montana. The mother picked out food and a big bag of socks, and then out the door of Costco, and out into that endlessly sunny parking lot, and up to their SUV. Past a fading old ghost I know who presents himself in an Army Air Force uniform from around World War I. One of those blimp hanger guys, died in an accident, likes to natter about preparedness. When they open the back of the Chevy SUV to cram in the big containers of taco beans and dip and Mountain Dew and jars of barbecue sauce big as buckets and huge styrofoam trays of frozen pork chops and chicken legs, that's when I climbed in and crowded myself into the back, curling up on top of some groceries, kind of chortling, loving the novelty of this. Let's go on a family drive, I yelled as they got into the big car. They couldn't hear me, of course, not talking that way. Come to think of it, though, I think Lindy did glance around a bit. So we drove out of the lot and out of Tustin to southeast Irvine. This was in the more affordable Irvine, east of the 405. West now, you've got your rich people, some movie stars, some grandsons of movie stars, your Turtle Rock, your Shady Canyon, your Tony Beach Houses. East Irvine, you got a lot of people working for the high-tech outfits, chip makers, all that stuff. That's where old Boyd worked, assistant supervisor in some department of the microchip plant. They got a pretty okay split-level four-bedroom house. There's a pool, but it's dried out and covered over. Lucille spent most of her time in a bedroom that Boyd called his den, but there was nothing left of him in it but a locked rack of guns, mostly rifles, one shotgun. Boyd belonged to a gun club. Went out there to shoot skeet and drink. When we came into the house, everyone went their separate ways. 
Lucille scurried off to hole up in her room and talk to her boyfriend, Droppy, on a cell phone. Franklin, he holed himself up in his room to play the Grand Theft thing. Lindy went to her room to watch the DVD on her little television. Boyd threw himself into a big chair in the living room to watch Encore's The Western Channel on cable. He was watching an old George Montgomery picture, a real stinker, and was drinking a tequila sunrise. Little wifey was in the same room, flipping through Sunset Magazine, but as far as Boyd was concerned, she was somewhere else. I was sitting between them on the sofa, looking back and forth and kind of grinning to myself that first day. Rema wasn't going to let him just stay in his Western Channel Tequila Sunrise world, though. It's kind of early to start with the sunrises, she said. <laughs> That's funny, Rema, I said. How can a sunrise be too early? Get it? They couldn't hear it, of course, but I appreciated my own wit. Hey, and you know what else? You're reading Sunset Magazine while he's drinking a sunrise. Hey, lady, you guys are in different time zones. I started singing, Sunrise, sunset, swiftly flow the years. It's my day off, Rema, Boyd said, and it's almost four. Are you going to that gun club tomorrow? You bet your sweet patootie I am. Not that your patootie has been sweet to me any time lately. You see, Boyd, you drink and say unfortunate things. And what if Lindy heard you? She's up to her neck in that Hannah Montana. Let me watch my show now. We don't have that much chance to talk with you on that shift now. It's unfortunate. That was one of her favorite words, unfortunate. I can't argue with them about the shifts. I haven't got enough seniority. I've told you this. I'm just saying that we don't have much time to talk, Boyd. And I'm worried about Franklin. What else is new? The kid's a loser. Straight D's, does no work of any kind anywhere, listens to criminals singing about how they killed cops and sold crack. Great. Lucky enough to be white, wants to be black. Don't be a racist. Your own sister has an interest in black culture. She's got an interest in a black something. Ha <laughs> ha, Boyd, I said. Good one. That's definitely one tequila sunrise too many, Boyd, Rema said. When you talk like that. One too many, I said, and this time I leaned in close to him and whispered it with my mind as much as my mouth. More like one too few. She should have one with you. Then you might have something to talk about. You might get lucky there, Boyd. He heard me in a way. When I do that kind of special whisper, they don't seem to hear every word, but they get some part of it, or at least the sense of it. You ought to have one and loosen up, Boyd said, as if it were his idea. I think Franklin is depressed, she said, flipping moodily through her magazine. He doesn't go out much, just stays in his room. Internet, video games, texting, that's all. He's got that one friend, Justin, but apart from that... That kid that lives in Tustin? Justin in Tustin? I crowed, slapping my knee. If I visualize slapping my knee while I do it, I can almost feel it. Ha! <laughs> Justin over in Tustin! Boyd wasn't hearing me anymore. I wasn't doing it that special way. I don't like that Justin kid around here, Boyd said, frowning, clinking the ice in his glass. I always feel like he's laughing at me. The two of them, I hear them rapping together for some MySpace site. It's disgusting. You get disgusted with your own son, something's wrong. And I think Franklin was trying to pick the lock on my gun cabinet. Kid's not honest. If you would take him to the gun club... 
I asked him if he wanted to go. Insisted he had to take his friend along, too. Why? I'm so boring, he's got to have entertainment. That's just being a teenager. You forget what you were like. Not like this. Isolating in that room with his internet. You didn't have the internet when you were a kid, Boyd, I said. But I wasn't really focused on Boyd now. He got me thinking about the boy. Depressed, isolated. Maybe I'd picked the wrong powder keg. If we could just put some water in the pool, Rema said. Franklin thinks if he could have a pool party... Cost way too much. I'm having to support Lucille. Maybe she really ought to... She lowered her voice. Move in with her boyfriend. That guy? I won't ever move in there. I got anything to say about it. She needs to get a part-time job, sure, but... I was already wandering away from them, looking for Franklin's room. I had to wait outside a while till he went to the bathroom. When he came back, I followed him in and looked around. It was a little bedroom with clothes all over the floor, socks and underwear, the moldy remains of a half-eaten Subway sandwich, an open magazine called Hip Hop Hard, looking like a run-over bird on the messy bed, posters all over the wall, mostly of hard-looking tattooed black guys, including one called Lil Wayne and one called 50 Cent. Franklin was on the computer at a white desk that looked too small for him, and after glancing to make sure the door was closed, he started to look at internet porn. Kid, I said. Normally I'd be into it, but we've got business. He was looking at something called Tranny Fanny and just starting to touch himself. I leaned near him and whispered into his ear, whispering in that special way with my mind. Your dad's about to come in and catch you. His back straightened and he turned really quick in his seat to glare at the door. And lucky for me, someone, probably Lucille, was walking by just then outside the closed door. He heard the footsteps and thought it was his dad. Franklin closed the porn pretty quickly, I can tell you. Then he just sat there shaking. No fucking privacy, he said, teeth all clenched. You get things like privacy when people respect you, kid. I said, knowing that he wouldn't hear it. Then I bent near him again and whispered the opposite with my mind. You deserve their respect. All the crap you put up with. He nodded to himself. Deserve more respect. Internet stuff was just starting to get really big when I died. I knew all about the World Wide Web. I used to stand behind an assistant manager at Costco when he was supposed to be working in his little office and watch him surf the net. So I whispered, Franklin, they made a movie about those Columbine guys. Everybody knows about them. How about you check out some websites on that? It was a little too early in the game to get him into the Columbine thing, though. He seemed to consider looking up the site, and then shook his head. I heard a car roaring down the street outside, somebody showing off their big noisy engine. That gave me an idea. I leaned close and whispered into his mind, You can protest your own way. Get fucked up with Justin. Go out for a joyride in your old man's car. The first time I made the suggestion, he just sat there and chewed his lip, frowning. Snorted to himself, kind of laughed, then muttered something about, Fucking cops. This would take some work, but I had to prepare him for later. First thing I figured was to get him into a more suggestible state. I leaned over and whispered with my mind, over and over, every ten seconds or so. The only way out is to get drunk and high. Ten seconds. The only way out is to get drunk and high. He resisted a little. Apparently, he'd promised his mom he'd do some kind of homework, and he sort of esteemed his old lady. 
But pretty soon he was calling his friend Justin on one of those tiny little cell phones. What up, dog? Hey, we gotta kick it. This was some kind of code between them for getting all fucked up. And it wasn't an hour later that Franklin was chilling with Justin, a fox-faced teen with several piercings and a t-shirt that said World of Warcraft. Justin didn't exactly come into the house. They agreed by cell to meet down the street in a construction site for another house, more or less like the one Franklin lived in. The foundation and the frame of the house, in raw yellow wood, were already there. Franklin and Justin squatted on the bare concrete in a half-walled room with a pint of some dark fluid that Justin had stolen from his pop's liquor cabinet and what I thought was a small cigar, but after a while I realized it was stuffed with dope. These kids, they call it a blunt. So there they were, drinking and smoking and talking about all kinds of stuff, neither one really listening to the other much. Franklin was talking about how he thought his mom was flirting with an airline pilot who lived across the street and how he wished she'd leave his dad for the pilot so he could get a free trip to Hawaii or something and how the guy knew how to party because a girl who'd been over there told him this pilot, Mr. Burford, liked to get hammered, which was something I took note of. Justin brought out his iPod and they each took one earbud, I think that's what they're called, and listened to some band that Justin said was from Norway, said it was a death metal rap band, and they were bobbing their heads like a whore giving a quick BJ, and when they were done, oh baby, were they ready to listen to me. Mostly it was the dope and the booze and just being pissed off. It turned out Justin's dad had smacked him around the night before, and he was still mad about it, so that helped. You could probably get that car away from the house, real quiet, and drive it off and go for a cruise and get it back without anybody noticing. I told Franklin. You know where the keys are. The kid was primed and ready to go. A few more suggestions and he and Justin were pushing the SUV down the driveway slope in neutral and onto the street, not to make too much noise. And then they were driving it off the west with me wedged between them on the front seat. Franklin drove through the residential neighborhoods toward the ocean, faster and faster, and I was there, riding along, whispering with my mind. You can push it a little faster. A little faster. This will make Justin respect you more. He makes fun of you like your dad does. The car was still barreling along, faster and faster, and the boys were whooping, and the radio was on real loud, something about diving from a mountain of cocaine. And then they didn't quite make a corner. They swerved. The car spun around, and they were both going, Shit! But I was going, Ha! This is more like it! And then, wham, bam, but no thank you, ma'am. We're wrapped around a telephone pole. The Justin kid didn't make it. He'd gone right through the windshield. No seatbelt, see? Cut all the ribbons. I saw his ghost standing around mewling to itself, and I said, Hey, fuck off, kid. And he got scared of me and backed away and kind of melted into himself. That's what happens to a lot of them. They melt into themselves, like they're going down a drain that's in their heart. Then they're just gone. Maybe it'd be better to just be gone that way, wherever they go. Anyhow, Franklin smacked his head on the steering wheel, and his left arm was pinched in a place by the door. He was crying like a bitch when the cops got there. Some firemen used the jaws of life to cut him out, and they lugged him to an ambulance. And there was Blonde Boy, working that ambulance. I'll find a moment to deal with you, Blonde Boy, I said as I got into the ambulance and back. Squatting in there with Franklin, I rode along to the hospital. Your dad's going to say you killed Justin. I whispered to the moaning Franklin in back. He'll imply it, even if he doesn't say it. 
Turned out to be not too far from the truth, too. Boyd was pretty damned mad. By the time he'd talked to Franklin the next morning in the hospital, he'd already had the threat of a lawsuit from Justin's family. They're saying it's your fault, his dad said angrily. And that makes it my fault. And the car's totaled. That much car insurance I haven't got. Do you know what a deductible is? It was so unfortunate, said his mother. Franklin was lying there listening to this and moaning, and finally he begged them to leave him alone. Once they'd gone, I whispered to Franklin with my mind, You see, they're not concerned about you or even Justin, only about how much damn money you cost them. Somehow there must be a way to teach them respect. Well, as it turns out, Boyd's insurance wasn't so great. Deductible too big again. Boyd and his wife argued about keeping Franklin in the hospital longer. I whispered hard at Boyd to get him out of there. He's fine. He doesn't deserve to be catered to in there. You can't afford this. So the kid was rushed out of the hospital against the advice of doctors. They wanted to do an MRI or something. Concussion and so on. Franklin's left arm was battered, but not actually broken. His head was swollen and bruised, but not actually cracked right open. So finally they let him go home. I suspected something else was wrong with him, though, because I'd been watching Franklin closer than the doctors, who maybe spent eight minutes with him total. Meanwhile, when I followed the family out of the hospital, who did I see outside but Blonde Boy? He was just getting back into an ambulance, having dropped some dying old lady off, and the cholo was with him, too. Perfect. I got in the ambulance and... Well, I'll tell you about a little ghost trick here. You can't push right through solid things, or I can't anyway, but you can put your ghost fingers right into someone's eyes, enough so it messes with their optic nerves. They don't feel it, but they start to see things in flashes, on and off, on and off. Hard to drive that way. Even harder when someone's whispering, Look out, look out, look out, you're gonna crash, in your mind, over and over, making them panicky. They didn't have their siren on, and he went right through a red light, and a semi-truck plowed them over. Gave me some satisfaction to give Blonde Boy's ghost a face-to-face earful about being a smartass over my body after the accident. He was too dazed to shout back, and I left him to figure it out on his own. His partner drained away into himself, but Blonde Boy just wandered off, and I walked in the opposite direction. We were only a few miles from the Holiday family house. Franklin was up and walking around in a couple of days. He seemed pretty out of it. His dad said he must have been overusing the pain meds, but mostly he just forgot to take them. He had some pressure on his brain from the wreck, I think. Probably a minor operation would have fixed it. Good thing for me I was able to get his dad to take him out of the hospital. Big suspense in the holiday house while the DA decided whether to charge Franklin with the manslaughter of his pal Justin. The cops pushed for it, but Rema got Franklin a good lawyer. Costing the family even more money, so they had to take out a second mortgage, and it was looking like the lawyer was going to get him off. I waited, biding my time, making suggestions along the way, guiding Franklin to search for certain kinds of websites, and making sure he saw an interview on that YouTube thing with some kid who'd almost died at one of those boot camps for problem teenagers. Just lucked onto that one. He happened to be on YouTube, and I saw it there scrolling by as I watched over his shoulder. I made sure he watched it. You know, I'm not exactly sure how I got so caught up in this process. How it got to be so important to me. Felt kind of pushed myself. Funny to think that now. 
But one thing is, old boy reminded me of my old man. That'd be a good reason right there. One night, when Boyd was working on his third tequila sunrise, Rummer broke it to him that a summons had come. They were being sued by Justin's family. A nice rage from Boyd. Franklin has ruined us! Lawyers! Lawsuits! It was handy how he yelled that loud enough for Franklin to hear clear upstairs. I went up and whispered to Franklin that he better go down and listen in, see what his parents were planning. Franklin came and sat on the bottom steps of the stairs, eavesdropping. Then I went back into the living room and whispered to Boyd with my mind. What about putting him in one of those boot camps for troubled teens? Hell, he stole your car. He was getting high on drugs, got his friend killed. He ought to go to jail anyway. And Boyd said it right on cue. Kid ought to go into one of those boot camps for problem teens. Franklin was already feeling scared and sick. This was too much. Which is what I figured. And he raced upstairs before he could hear his dad reassuring Rema. Oh, hell. You know I would never do that to the boy. I wouldn't send him away. Maybe you're right. Maybe he needs therapy. Later that night, when his parents had gone to bed, Franklin took a handful of codeine and, at my suggestion, drank a tumbler of his dad's tequila. I remembered having heard you mix hard alcohol and codeine puts you in a real bad mood, sometimes a killing mood. And the kid was primed already when I told him, they're going to put you in that boot camp to get rid of you, just lock you up in that boot camp for bad teens. Lucille was out with Droppy. Coast was clear in the room with the gun cabinet. So I made some more suggestions, and a little later, Franklin got into the toolbox in the garage, found a hammer and chisel, went to Lucille's room, Boyd's old den, and busted the lock on the gun cabinet. He picked out the pumped shotgun, which his dad had shown him how to shoot, loaded it up real good, and went marching through the house, swept along the red wave of rage I could see in the air around him. His dad was sitting up in bed arguing with Rema when in came Franklin, and there was a moment of hesitation. The kid almost got a grip on himself. I told him, The old man thinks you're disgusting. Look at him. He's disgusting. He's disgusting. It's him. And it felt almost like I had the gun as Franklin brought the butt up against his shoulder and aimed it at his dad. But his mother jumped up and shouted, No! and got in the way, and the shot intended for his dad caught his mom right in the neck and just blew most of it all over the pillows, and she fell like a little rag doll. That really made Franklin mad, and I told him it was his dad's fault, and he pumped two rounds at point-blank range into his old man, right up under the sternum, blew his chest bones up into his head, and he heard someone yelling behind him. He turned and fired without even looking. He didn't quite hit the girl Lindy directly. Mostly she caught splinters from the door frame and a few pieces of buckshot, but it put her down on her back, and then he was yelling at himself that he was disgusting. I totally suck! I'm totally fucked! And he did suck. He sucked on the gun barrel and booey, his addled little brains were all over the ceiling. I tell you what, it was a good night's work. That's what I thought, looking around. But I wasn't alone in the room. There was Franklin and his mother and his dad. They're ghosts. Franklin's ghost was walking in circles, clutching himself, calling for his mom, and his dad was just melting away like there was so little soul in him it just couldn't sustain itself without his body. And his mom's ghost was looking sadly at Franklin and reaching for him, but then she drained away into her own heart. Lindy was alive, though. 
She was laying on her back, looking at me. Right at me. Seems like being close to death made it possible for her to see me, her being sensitive anyway. You're a ghost, she said. You're the one. You and that other. Whatever, kid, I said. All I did was make suggestions. They didn't have to take them. Then I wandered off to the living room to look at the tequila and wish I could have some. Lucille came home pretty soon after and found the mess, called the cops, and Lindy was taken to the hospital. Lindy told Lucille what she saw, and she called the fake Ghostbuster, and here I am, talking on his gear. One thing about this jerk is he's totally incapable of... Okay, there was a little cut there. He tried listening back to see if there was anything on the tape and he couldn't hear it. He ended up recording over a little of what I said about him just now. But it's recording again. Almost out of tape, though. I think my story is there, but it's super faint. He'd probably need some kind of special gear to hear it. I think somebody might, though, one of these days. I've got a new project. That airline pilot, Burford, across the street. I think I can talk him into getting blitzed out of his gourd before he flies the plane. Then I use my other little tricks and get him to crash that 747. It'll be full of people, of course. I'm going to start work on it tomorrow. People probably see things in the papers, like what happened to the holidays, and they ask themselves, why did that happen? Well, now you know. Because I can't be the only one up to this. I wonder if I should feel bad about it. I can't feel much, you know. Anyway, I try not to. And after all, all I did was make suggestions. Not counting Blonde Boy. Him I flat out killed. But mostly, just suggestions. Sometimes, I think there's a voice I've heard myself, from somewhere, making suggestions. To me. Only, not exactly in words, but still, whispering to me. Pushing me into all this stuff. Wouldn't that be funny? But, same deal. I don't have to listen to it. Just like Franklin didn't have to listen to me. That's the bottom line, man. It's all just a suggestion, you know? Thank you for that, John. As mentioned, two views of the life ever after. While I hope not, I fear that this last story, just a suggestion, may come frighteningly close to reality. <laughs> what do you think? The bleeding edge, dark barriers, dark frontiers wherein Just a Suggestion was first published, is what one might call a landmark anthology. It was edited by William F. Nolan and Jason B. Brock and contains never-before-published works by, among many others, Ray Bradbury, Gary Brownbeck, Norman Corwin, Cody Goodfellow, Earl Hamner, George Clayton Johnson, Joe R. Lansdale, Richard and Richard Christian Matheson, Lisa Morton, Dan O'Bannon, Frank M. Robinson, Steve Rasnick Tem, S.T. Josie, and John Shirley. The book is hard to come by these days, and if you do find it, expect to pay quite a bit for it. 
In addition to his writing more than 30 books, publishing 10 collections, and the musical works he's done with The Blue Oyster Cult and others, John has written screenplays, scripted TV series, et al. They are, in no particular order, the TV series, Prophet, VR5, Poltergeist the Legacy, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, The Real Ghostbusters, Defenders of the Earth, Iron Man, Armored Adventures, Batman Beyond. He also scripted the TV movie Twists of Terror, and he did the screenplays for The Tomb and co-wrote a little number called The Crow with fellow splatterpunk author David J. Schaul. Just a suggestion was read for us tonight by an old friend of the Nook, Joe San Marco. And thank you again, Joe. This is, what, your eighth or ninth evening with us? That's fine with me. Keep at it. Joe San Marco is 27, is from Los Angeles, but now lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and proudly considers himself a geek with a soft place in his heart for fantasy, science fiction, horror, and PS3 gaming. By now, he's narrated at least a few dozen stories for the Starship Sofa and for us, and is focused on becoming a professional voice actor for animated films and gaming. So, if you need a voice for whatever project you have going, get a hold of Joe. The which you can do by connecting with him on the site I've posted on our homepage, TalesToTerrify.com. And before you leave this evening, there is one more thing I want to remind you of. Tales to Terrify is once again nominated for Podcast of the Year by the This Is Horror group. This Sunday is your last chance to vote. You are encouraged. No, no. You are implored. No, no. I beg you. Go to the This Is Horror website and vote. It's simple. It's explained on the site. Last year, we were runner-up. That's great, but this year we would like to win. So, please, go vote for us. It's just a suggestion now, I would have you be upstanding. I would ask you to wrap up and to be off with you, as Karnacki might say. As you know, the weather has relented. You should be safe going home tonight, from the weather, at least. A little snow is falling, but the temperatures are way above the minus 20 degrees we were experiencing earlier this week, 50 below zero Fahrenheit wind chill will discourage most things from attacking you en route. Creatures, spirits, ghosts, whatever, they're probably not out and about. I gather they stay indoors during these conditions. Oh, well, it's still slippery, and people have not yet cleared their sidewalks adequately. So be careful about that, but I think you'll make it home. I think you'll make it up the stairs. You'll make it inside. When you do... Turn up the heat, get in bed, pull the covers up, and have pleasant dreams. Hmm? 
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the fun. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, ninety-six percent replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a thirty-night guarantee. Plus, get fifteen percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns. Finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.